morning, church. If you would open your Bibles with me, please, to Mark chapter 8. If I haven't had the opportunity to greet you, my name is Gene Emerson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Kingsway. As, as you're finding your place in the Bible, I was reflecting on a, a wedding that Liz and I had the opportunity to be greeters at. I, I don't often get to do that, and I loved at Riette's wedding being able to greet people as they came in. And one of the things I noticed was that everybody was there early. In fact, I, I don't believe there was a single person that got there after the start time, and there's two reasons for that. One, to honor the family, but second, everybody wants to watch the bride come down the aisle, right? Nobody wants to come in while they're saying their vows, and I'm just here for the reception, thanks. We want to see, we want to be there, we want to anticipate something special is going to happen. And, and the reason I share that is that when we gather here on Sunday morning, something special is going to happen. And the reason it's going to happen is not just that we like each other, though we do, and not just that we enjoy being together, which we do, but something that Hebrews tells us, if you put that verse up from Hebrews 2, Jesus says to the Father, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Now, just ponder that. When we gather here Sundays, Jesus has told us ahead of time, I'm going to be there with you. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. And it's not because of the building, it's because of the people. It's because God's families gathered. He's here among us. And he's not only here, but he's, he's singing his praises. He's singing the Father's praises with us. When we begin singing on Sunday mornings, I'm thinking in my mind often of this verse. And I'm thinking, the Lord is here with us and we're, we're singing together. And there's something so amazing and special about that. Um, but... What's not amazing is sometimes maybe a third of us are in the room and we're kind of drifting in during the first few songs. And and I'm just thinking, God, this should be more like a wedding because you're here. And, and we're, we're gathered unto you. And when we begin to sing together, something wonderful is happening. Like the bride coming down the aisle. The Lord is among us. Now, occasionally we'll have a car breakdown or a flat tire or a baby does what babies do. And we're, we're running late and that's certainly understandable. But, but I want to encourage us not to be thinking, well, I, maybe if I, all goes well, I'll be there right when they start. But to think, how can I make sure, like for a wedding, I'm there 10 or 15 minutes early to greet God's people, to fellowship, to pray for one another, to prepare my heart. And then when Matthew said, let's worship together, I'm right there. Because Jesus is there. If he's there, I should be there too. He shouldn't have to wait on me. So I want to ask you as your pastor, 
please do whatever you need to do to orient your life. Think of this as a wedding. And, and come early. Come early. Make sure that we're all here 10 or 15 minutes early so that we can fellowship, so we can pray for one another, so we can greet our guests as they come, and, and so that we can spend time with our Lord together. We, amen? Would you do that? Let's trust the Lord that he'll help us to do that. Amen. Thank you. Well, Lord, we pray now for your word, and we thank you that as we come, you are here among us. And as we hear your preached word, it's not about me, and it's not about what we think. Lord, it's about what you think. And today, you're going to point your finger at us through your word, and you're going to speak to us. And your word is going to come alive by your spirit, and you're going to change our lives. And Lord, that's fully apart from whatever I do or we do. It's not dependent on the sound system. Lord, it's, it's your word that's going to change our lives. And so would you do that now? Would you let your word work actively in us and transform us? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 8. The text this morning begins in verse 27, but I'd like us to begin for the sake of context in verse 22. Mark 8, beginning in verse 22. They, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let, he, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are certain moments that define us. You might think back in your life, think back to events on a national scale like 9-11 or the earthquake in Richmond. Where were you on that day? You might think to your wedding day or the birth of your first child, a major event in your life, someone that you loved who passed away. Certain moments define us. Everything changes. What was before is altogether different. This morning we come to a defining moment in the Gospel of Mark. A stunning defining moment. The first half of the book comes to a climax. Everything before was in Galilee. There were fast-paced stories describing Jesus' amazing ministry. We see the word immediately used again and again and again. God's kingdom decisively breaking in. Stories of healings and miracles and teachings and exorcisms. And then we come to this account. And as Jesus' identity is revealed, everything changes. And terms like in verse 27, when it says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way, he asked his disciples. That term, on the way, appears nine times between chapters 8 and 12. It speaks of a change of perspective. The pace slows. Jesus leaves, leaves Galilee and he is on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. There are hardly any miracles. Less teaching to the crowds and more to his disciples. Less focus on Jesus' power and authority. Increasing focus on his mission and his weakness and his submission. Ultimately focus on his death on the cross. And our text is preceded by this interesting account of a blind man brought to Jesus at Bethsaida. It's an unusual healing because it occurs in two steps. Normally when Jesus prays, everything happens. But in this account, in this account, a blind man is brought and Jesus spits on his eyes and he sees as men walking like trees. And then Jesus prays for him and and he sees immediately and perfectly. Some of you might feel that way with your glasses off. You need some immediately and perfectly. This healing happened in stages. This morning's text puts it all in focus for the disciples. They they have this new life and, and it has two components. It says something about Jesus 
and something about ourselves. It, it addresses two questions that we've been asking since the beginning of our study of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Verses 27 to 33, just to answer the question, who is Jesus? Verses 34 to 38 answer, what does it mean to follow him? And Jesus uses these two amazing questions, two strategic questions to, to set the stage for his disciples. Questions are powerful, aren't they? They stimulate thought. They invite reflection and provoke deliberation. Wise parents ask questions. Good counselors ask questions. And Jesus is gently, indirectly leading them through these two questions. The first as they're walking along, and you can just picture this, can't you? They're walking, walking along the way, and Jesus says to his disciples, what do people say about me? What do people say about me? Now, that's a question that if most of us ask the question, it's somewhat, really, honestly irrelevant. I don't, when I'm meeting with Matthew and Josh and Chris, I, I usually say, well, guys, what do people say about me? I'm not really sure I'd want to know, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I don't say to my family over dinner, what are people saying about me? Because it's not really important, ultimately, what people say about me. But it's eternally important what people say about Christ. He is the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners. Our confession regarding Him is eternally important. And the Gospel of Mark so far has been preoccupied with this question. So we saw at the very beginning in chapter 1 in Capernaum, the question, what is this? A teaching with authority as they marveled. In chapter 2, when Jesus heals a scribe man, uh, I'm sorry, a lame man, the scribes say, who forgives sins but God alone? In chapter 6, in his hometown, they, they, they ask the question, isn't this the carpenter? And later in the same chapter, Herod Antipas says, who is this? And the answers that were given to Herod are the same ones that the disciples give to Jesus. Some say you're John, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, the prophet of power. Some say you're the reappearance of one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. In other words, everyone had an opinion. And the word on the street was that Jesus was a very prominent messenger from God. Somebody who had died and had risen from the dead. They thought he was great. They were impressed with his prophetic character. They would rank Jesus among the great religious leaders in Israel. They picture him in the hall of fame of religious leaders. That could seem positive at first glance. They had a good opinion of Jesus. 
But ultimately, their reports were not just inaccurate, but degraded. Because they denied Jesus' unique nature. His unique person. They put Jesus in our category. Under our control. They honor Him but misrepresent Him. They applaud Him while denying who He really is. And you know, if you would go out on the street today and ask the crowds who they think Jesus is, it would be much the same, wouldn't it? Oh, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good man, an example. He was a healer. He taught us how to love. The model of spirituality. There'd be many opinions about Jesus. One man called public opinion the judgment of the incapable many. There would be many illustrations, many ideas. But all of those ideas are wrong. All of those ideas are at best inaccurate. And they, they have the, the effect of putting Jesus on the mantle of our life. Look at him. Isn't he nice? We're, we define him. We, we, we put him up and we admire him and we, we speak to him. But he doesn't speak to us. He's a man in our own terms. In the words and works of Christ, he gave every evidence that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. Yet they did not get the message. And instead of diligently seeking for truth, they listened to popular opinion and followed it. Just as people do today. That's why this passage is so critical for our lives. Because Jesus doesn't leave it for us to define who he is, nor how we respond to him. This passage is central in the book of Mark because it pulls together all of the the anticipation of defining who this man is and what we must do. And that comes to a head in the question that he, follow-up question he asks in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? The you is emphatic. Who do you say I am? Now, he's speaking to his disciples, right? They've left everything to follow him. They, they are his closest allies. They've paid a price. They know who he is. So why would he press them? Well, the truth of the matter is that the disciples have been afraid. They've been dull. They've, they, they've been pondering a question since, the, since Jesus stilled the storm in chapter 4. Remember, he was asleep in the stern and, and, and they woke him and said, Don't you care? We're about to perish. And he spoke to the storm, Be still. And it, immediately, nature was under his command. It stopped. Immediately. And the disciples, the disciples said, Who then is this? They've been pondering. They've been trying to figure out who is this. And folks, here's what Jesus is saying. 
having a front row seat's not enough. Doing the ushering and food distribution, being beside him day at night is not enough. Jesus wants them to move from observers to participants, from being passive in observation to being active in confession. And you know what? He wants you to move as well. Many of us are in that place where, where we need to become not observers but participants, not passive observers but active confessors. So let's not move too quickly here. Remember that these disciples didn't have the benefit of the history we know. And they are seeking to consider, to answer a question that has a message for you and I. A question every person must answer. Who do you say I am? Jesus grounded a man's eternal destiny based on what we think of him. In John 8, he said, If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sin. So who do you say I am is the most important question anyone can answer. It's decisive and it's supremely personal. Jesus didn't come to help you with your sin or to be an example to follow. He didn't come to make your life happier. It's not enough to be good, to try hard, to treat people right. Not enough to work hard to provide for your family or to be responsible for others. We must answer this question. Who do you say I am? To avoid that question is to reject Jesus' answer. And I urge you, I plead with you, not to avoid it. Peter answered the question. It's one of the most famous answers in all of history. Peter answers in verse 29, You are the Christ. Sight. He sees. All the things that have come before come together. It's like putting together, I, I hate buying things and you open the box and there's 50 pieces and it says easy to assemble and there's directions and it's never easy to assemble and I can never figure it out and I've always got parts left over. It's never clear. But when it does come together and all the parts come together and it works, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. And this is amazing. Peter, Peter sees It all comes together. It works. You are the Christ. Now, let's be clear. He wasn't giving Jesus a last name. It's not Jesus' first name, Christ's last name. Jesus is the name of the Son of God. Christ is his title. Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Messiah or Anointed One. So, 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 Peter, in saying you are the Christ, is saying that you are the one Israel has been waiting for since the time of David. You are the anointed deliverer, the one sent by God to bring his kingdom. 
You're acting with God's authority to deliver the sick, heal the oppressed, calm the storms, to set the world right. Oh, what a moment. You're uniquely sent by God with the authority to bring the kingdom. In you, all the promises of Scripture are fulfilled. And Jesus, in Matthew's parallel account, both accepts and commends Peter's answer. Remember, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, you're right. You've got it right. And, and this is a, the great transition in Mark because the first half of the book is fulfilled in this place. The first half comes together. All the parts work. Who he is. The king. The king has come. And after Peter's confession, the second half of the book focuses on what he came to do. And that's what Jesus addresses beginning in verse 31. Now, because it's so brief, because it's so quick, because this transition happens so quickly, it's hard for us to realize what a jolt, what a shock, how stunning these words were. Think about this. Peter, and it would seem speaking for the other disciples, understand, maybe, maybe for the first time they really get it, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now they know that all the promises of the Old Testament are looking forward to this conquering Messiah who would defeat all their enemies and establish a glorious kingdom for Israel. He would make Israel a glorious place. And they're, they're, they, when they recognize that this is the Messiah, it's, 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 like, it's like realizing that the guy you've been campaigning for, for president, just won. It's good news. Because you're being swept in with him. We're talking some cabinet positions here. We're talking some honor, some prestige. We're talking, uh, we're talking doing some damage to people that have been against us. We're, we're, pretty, we're in a pretty good place. We're with him. And then he tells them what he came to do. And it seems for the first time they really get it. Jesus has shared some, some illusions. He'll say things like, one day the bridegroom will be taken away. And you can kind of see the disciples scratching their heads like, well, what's that mean? But now he's clear. It's no longer an illusion. Jesus, Jesus is clear what he's called to do. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, no longer making allusions. Okay, guys, now that you understand that I'm the Messiah, let me explain to you what a Messiah does. Let me explain to you what the future will hold. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. And Jesus is presenting them a suffering Messiah. 
something's wrong with this. It's like assembling the, a TV remote control and getting a, having a picture of a jackhammer. It just doesn't really seem to work. Like, how, how is this happening exactly? This doesn't make sense. And it's shocking. It's stunning. These men love Jesus. They've left all to follow him. No doubt they're full of anticipation for what his Messiahship meant for them. He has authority over sickness, demons, nature, and, and death itself. They're looking for triumph, not suffering. They're looking for reigning, not death. How can this one who has authority over all things be put to death? How can this one that, that the religious leaders should be anticipating be the subject of their anger and their judgment? Their very view of Messiahship excluded suffering and execution. It's simply out of sync. Who would ever design a method of saving the world that would include disaster, despair, and death? It makes no sense. It's offensive. And even in our own day, even given the Scriptures, so many people cannot accept this account. Religious leaders call Jesus' crucifixion cosmic child abuse. They are in unbelief. They don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It, and let's be honest. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. This is offensive stuff. This is crazy. But Jesus didn't say this might happen. Or guys, things might get out of control here. I don't know if this is going to... No, Mark wants us to know that this must happen, that this is God's foreordained plan. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's God's plan. It must occur. The messianic rule of God begins with atonement for sin. They wanted rescue from the Romans, but they needed rescue from their sins. He must suffer to make reconciliation. For iniquity, he must die because without his death, sinners could never have life. R.C. Sproul says it this way, A king who dies is not what they expected or wanted. It is, however, what they desperately needed. It is, however, what we desperately needed. Well, one of the ironies of Scripture is that Peter, having just distinguished himself by declaring you're the, the, the Messiah, is now, verse 32, putting his arm around Jesus, taking him aside, and beginning to rebuke him. You have to admire Peter. He doesn't miss a beat. He understands that who Jesus is but he really believes that this is not the best plan. This is not the way it should go. Now, Jesus, you might think this, but let me just help you out. I'm not on board with this crucifixion stuff. I'm not on board with you going to the cross. How about this as a better plan? Why don't you become a king and we'll just, we'll just slaughter everybody? How about that? 
We'll just take them down. We'll be by your side. We'll help you. I've got a sword. I'm pretty good at it. How about we find plan B? And Jesus, well, Jesus recognized that in back of Peter, well-intentioned Peter, stood Satan. It was the very words that Satan had spoken to him in the wilderness. The very words that Satan had sought to entice him with being a crossless king. A crossless victor. A crown without the cross. And Peter was a mouthpiece for Satan. Peter was sharing what would have been indeed a very real temptation for Jesus as a man had no desire to go through the cross. Surely if there could have been another way, he would have looked for it. Jesus' reaction was prompt, decisive, and forceful. Get behind me, Satan. And here's why. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter and the other disciples might have had the right title, but they had an insufficient understanding of why. They didn't understand the process. They didn't see what it would take. They didn't understand the need for the cross. That's why Jesus, in verse 30, strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Because what they would have told would have surely created more problems than help. What they would have told was, he's the Messiah. Let's get back at him. Let's have an overthrow. Let's, let's get on with this government stuff. Jesus didn't want his path to Calvary to be interrupted. His resolve to suffer and die in our place is underscored by his command. Not to tell anyone. Jesus intended to die for you, for me. And then we see the second question. The first question is who is Jesus? We understand who he is and what he came to do. The second question is what does it mean to follow him? And the rest of this chapter tells us this, that to be a disciple is to follow in his steps. His call is our call. The rest of this chapter shows you that these words were not written by men, but by the Spirit, for man would have never chosen this path. As horrific as it was for the disciples to hear that Christ would be crucified, Now Jesus is saying, and you guys, you're following me. You're going to lose your lives as well. Brothers and sisters, this is even more stunning. The the platitudes, the, the, the unbelievable understanding of what Jesus is saying just continues to escalate. He's saying confessing Christ means we must follow him to crucifixion. And this begins what's called the Great Discipleship Discourse. 
Over the next five chapters, Jesus predicts his death three separate times. And each time he predicts his death, he immediately instructs about the cost and nature of discipleship. In other words, Mark wants to be sure that we know, first and foremost, who Jesus is, and second, what it means to follow him. That, that must be absolutely clear. And by the end of Mark, we will know without doubt not only who Christ is, but what it means to follow him. As we ponder these next chapters together, our lives should be changed. Our presuppositions should be challenged. Our, in, our desire to blend in, to have a normal life, to add Jesus to our lives should be eliminated. For Jesus is speaking to us. Look, look at verse 34. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples. In other words, what he is going to say now has significance for everybody. Most were following him because of their miracles. And Jesus is saying to them, this is a matter of life and death. Everlasting life versus eternal death. Everyone must become my disciple to live. And so, he calls the crowd to him. And he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would follow in my footsteps, if anyone would be my disciple, three things have to occur. Three basic things that will turn your life upside down. First of all, he says, you must deny yourself. We must fundamentally reorient our lives, hear this, so that we are removed from the center of our lives and Christ is Place in the center of our lives. We could say, place him on the throne of your life. It's an active decision to let go, to serve him, to serve and live for him instead of our own comfort and self-interests. Now, this is not like Lent. This isn't an establishment of of days that you can't eat or or you can't eat meat or whatever. Other self-denying would be in place in religious systems. Rather, a surrender to Christ. Denying self is far more than self-denial. Denying Christ is placing Him in the center, depending on God alone for salvation. Not on God plus what we do, but God alone. It's turning away from sinful thoughts and habits to please and treasure Him. In other words, denying ourselves is about as un-American as we could be. It's turning everything on its head. Deny yourself. Then He says, take up your cross. The cross was not a piece of jewelry. The cross was a means of horrible death. The most torturous and painful and humiliating death known to man. When a condemned man carried his own cross to execution, it was a way of demonstrating submission and obedience to authority against which he had rebelled before. But what the convict does under duress, disciples of Christ do willingly. Sacrificing, enduring anything because of our love for the Savior. 
putting to death our self-centered life for the sake of the gospel, literally losing our life, not just feeling lose like we're losing it, losing our lives. When Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's a great summary of the gospel. And Luke's gospel adds the word daily to take up your cross daily because that's how we must do it. It's not a one-time decision. It's an ongoing way of life. A cross from, comes from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life, bearing disdain because we're embracing the narrow way of the cross, embracing weakness instead of power, extending ourselves in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. Deny yourself, he said. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me is just a a way of saying, obey me. Walk in my footsteps. Obey my commands. This is not like a special message for special disciples or missionaries. This is a call to the normal Christian life. And it's so easy in our culture to minimize this, to glaze this over, to act like this is something for the super saints. But I don't want to be extreme. He goes on to underscore how critical this path to glory is. Verse 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Talk about countercultural. What an understatement. This rocks our boat. Satan promises us glory, but in the end we receive suffering. God promises us suffering, but in the end that suffering is transformed into glory. It's the upside-down kingdom, living a self-centered life focused on the present world will lose our lives. And think about it. Think about times in your life where you've compromised to find joy, to find happiness. Do you find it? Think about times in your life where you've given sacrificially where you've taken Christ's words seriously and turned away from sin. Think about people that you know and admire who are following Christ. What is the quality? What is the quality that we see? Men and women who lose their lives save it. I love C.T. Studd, who a, a century ago was a missionary in China, India, and Sudan. He said, we will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. That's his summary of verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man Give in return for a soul. 
Brothers and sisters, this is a weighty call. It's a call to serve Him, to identify with the one who came to die for our sin. It separates us from our comfortable version of Jesus. And these chapters will require us to, to acknowledge if we've placed Jesus on the mantle of our lives so that we can talk to Him about how we want to do good things or whether we've embraced the cost of discipleship and whether we're allowing Him to convict us and to change us and to transform us into a people who are willing to die for Him, are willing to live for Him. David Platt, who recently became the president of the Southern Baptist Mission Board here in Richmond, wrote the following. We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable. A nice middle class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who's fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. I want to challenge you to think deeply about these things. To really take these in your heart. That's what I'm seeking to do. To really ask a question. Am I a disciple as defined by Christ? I, I find way too often I'm not. Am I, am I embracing His cross? Am I coming to die Or am I seeking to make my own way to live? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship said, it's only because he became like us that we can become like him. When we ponder the gospel, we ponder not only the call to come and die, but the power to do so. We follow Christ in his example we understand that, that He gives us true life. He shows us true life. He calls us to come and die. And so He answers the questions for us. Who is Jesus? Well, He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the glorious Messiah who will make all things right. What does it mean to follow Him? It means to deny myself. Take up his cross and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. I want us to ponder that that for a few moments. And then after we sing a song or two, we're going to share communion together. And find there the hope that we have in the gospel. Would you pray with me?
God, thank you that you, you call us together. Not just to teach us something new, but to remind us of what is urgent. You called us together this morning, Father, to reveal yourself to us afresh as the Messiah. The very Son of God. You helped us along with the disciples see that that's a call to die. And that your call to die is ours as well. And so would you help us? Lord, we need your help. We need help found by the Spirit. We need help found in the sacrament of communion. Thank you for providing it for us today. Oh God, show us the way to walk. And I pray that over these next weeks that you would open our hearts to understand what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And I pray for each one of us, beginning with myself, that this would not be simply knowledge, but would transform our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?